0: As we start this evening, I just want to um, say something about the study guide. We did put a lot of time and thought into putting it together, but we're not going to go through it systematically in any way. And we're going to jump around in the study guide, and sometimes we'll use a quote a few times and others we won't use at all. So it's not something that we're going to be uh, using in a systematic way. And that's a bit what I'm going to be doing tonight, kind of jumping around within the study guide into different sections. There are many views about what the most important teaching of the Buddha is. Uh, the Buddha himself, I think, put a lot of emphasis on dependent origination as uh, one of his most unique and powerful teachings. Um, that obviously, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is considered central, or the teaching on karma, I think, even emptiness. Guy, last night, I think he said, oh, that maybe that's the most important teaching. So there's a lot of debate about what that most important teaching might be. And there's also a debate about what is unique to the Buddha's teaching. Um, what was perhaps just around in the milieu, in the, in the understanding of his time that he took over and used, and what's actually, um, he, did he come up with himself was unique to his teaching and his dispensation? Whenever people have these kinds of discussions, they always talk about things like dependent origination or emptiness, um, kind of these lofty, somewhat philosophical ideas. And the one that doesn't get mentioned so much, I actually think is the most unique, powerful, and even radical or revolutionary, and that's the practice of mindfulness. It's actually this practice of turning our awareness, to our present moment experience and noticing what's happening. In the time of the Buddha, if you know much about his life, he lived 2,500 years ago in a very rural, agrarian culture where the main, um, pra- the main religion was Brahmanism, which was a caste-based uh, system and had a lot of emphasis on ritual. And again, I'm no expert in these things, just in the little reading that I've read. My understanding is the main kind of practices that were taught at the time were either concentration, shamatha, uh, to deep states of concentration, or ascetic practices. And there was a strong tradition of renunciate wanderers who lived what's called the homeless life. And that's what the Buddha did when he left his home as a layperson. He practiced these intense concentration techniques and then did many years of asceticism and realized that none of that held the answer to what he was looking for. And so he came up with, as far as I know, this radical uh, practice of turning the attention, not to um, transcend the body or bring the mind to some deep state, state of absorption, even though that was included in his practice, but this knowing of experience in this direct and powerful way, this practice of mindfulness. And so I consider one of his most important suttas the four foundations of mindfulness, that sutta that's really the core of our practice, where it talks about awareness of the breath and the body in all of these different ways, and then looking at feeling tone, and the mind, and then the real range of practice and how we bring the mind to awakening through the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Another sutta that I consider key in this radical understanding is uh, Majima Nikaya 19, um, the two kinds of thought, where before the Buddha was enlightened, he looked at his mind and said, you know, I see there are two kinds of thought that I have. I have the kind of thought that's full of well-wishing and kindness and generosity, and it leads to my well-being, the well-being of others, the well-being of both. And then there are other kinds of thoughts, thoughts of greed or aversion or stinginess. And those kinds of thoughts lead to the, the harm of myself, harm of others, harm of both. He said, what if I, and this is a radical insight, what if I put those kind of thoughts that lead to harm aside and those that are wholesome, and lead to well-being and and nourish and nurture those. It was that insight, that practice that was key in uh, bringing his mind to the place of awakening, this, this understanding of how the mind works. And so these are the practices that we do to this day, working with the breath, calming the body, And looking at the nature of the mind and seeing how we get caught. And so I consider these to be uh, his radical teachings that are having such a huge impact today. Being taught in schools and in in businesses. You know, being taught in all to people who are suffering and illness and and all kinds of other uh, venues. It's his teaching of mindfulness that's so powerful. And so we use this practice of mindfulness to train the mind and calm the body, come into a different relationship to our experience, start to notice our experience in a radically different way than the way we normally do. And we begin to be able to see beyond or through our normal conditioned habits of mind reactions, reactivity. We learn to actually see differently. And this is, again, what the the Buddha pointed to again and again. Because normally, in our relationship to the world, the untrained mind that the Buddha often talked about is caught up in all kinds of concepts and misperceptions about how things actually are. So I think this Um, quality of perception which I'll talk about we'll do a talk later on on the aggregates and it's one of the um, components of that teaching on the aggregates is so key to this learning to see differently because a lot of the time we're not seeing very clearly we're so caught up in conceptions in, in identification that we're in a way blind to what's actually in front of us and this was Uh, brought home to me clearly in a book I read a little while ago by a woman called Temple Grandin. She's actually an autistic woman, very high-functioning. She's become an animal behaviorist because she feels that her autism and the fact that she actually thinks in pictures enables her to really understand the animal mind. And so this book is a lot about understanding animals, but she also, because she feels a little... Um, different from a lot of other people there's a lot of insight into how the human mind works as well and so this is a whole section she um, does on what people see and don't see and I found it quite interesting in this around this view of perception and what we're able to see and what we choose not to see so this is from her book There's a famous experiment by a psychologist named David Simons, head of the Visual Cognition Lab at the University of Illinois called Gorillas in Our Midst, midst, that shows you how bad people's visual awareness is. In the experiment, they show people a videotape of a basketball game and ask them to count how many passes one team makes. Then, a little while into the tape, while everyone is sitting there counting passes, a woman wearing a gorilla suit walks onto the screen, walks into the screen, stops, turns, faces a camera, and beats her fist on her chest. 50% of all people who watch this video don't see the gorilla. Even when experimenters ask them directly, did you see the gorilla, they, don't, they say, the what? It's not that they don't remember the lady in the gorilla suit. Anyone who's forgotten something they they saw will remember it if you give them a prompt. These folks actually didn't see the gorilla in the first place. She just didn't register. The experimenters tested out this theory with another video in which an actor suddenly changes into a whole different person wearing a completely different set of clothes. 70% of normal people don't notice that either. They also don't notice it in real life. In one study, a blond-haired man wearing a yellow shirt handed students a form to fill out, then took the completed form behind a bookcase to file. When he came back out, he was a dark-haired man wearing a blue shirt. He wasn't the same guy in disguise. He was a whole different person. It didn't matter. 75% of the students had no idea they'd just interacted with two different people. I like that they always do these experiments on students in grad school or whatever and they always think that the experiment is about something else uh, and it's really about, you know, how they're relating to the person doing the experiment. The scariest study, though, was one that NASA did with commercial airline pilots. The researchers put them in a flight simulator and asked them to do a bunch of routine landings. But on some of the landing approaches, the experimenters added the image of a large commercial airplane parked on the runway, parked on the runway, something a pilot would never see in real life, at least one would hope not. One quarter of the pilots landed right on top of the plane. They never saw it. I've seen a photograph from the study, and what's interesting is that if you're not a pilot, the parked plane is pretty obvious. You can't miss it, and you don't have to be autistic to see it either. I bet the ranch that the only people who could possibly miss that plane would have to be commercial pilots. If you're a professional expecting to see what a professional normally would see, there's a 25% chance that you'll miss a huge commercial aircraft parked crossways blocking the landing on the flight simulator. That's because normal people's perceptual systems are built to see what they're used to seeing, If they're used to seeing gorillas in the middle of basketball games, they see gorillas. If they're not used to seeing gorillas in the middle of basketball games, they don't. They have inattentional blindness. And I find this fascinating in in, um, conjunction with what we talk about here on retreat. We're really training ourselves to see what we don't normally notice. And it takes training to see what's difficult to see, what's actually not usual in our perceptions, in our normal understanding of the words, of the world. In other places in the book, Temple said things like, people don't consciously see any object unless they're paying direct focused attention. There's actually a whole book out now called Inattentional Blindness that looks at this, the fact that we don't really see anything unless we consciously pick it out and perceive it, unless this factor of perception is awakened in us. And we can go through a lot of our day not noticing a huge amount of our experience. And in some ways we have to do that because there's so much going on. But as we train ourselves in meditation, we start to see differently. And this is what's key. But it's not easy to do. And even the Buddha knew that in his time, quote 52. It's way back in the text, is that page 35? Um, I love this quote, many of you probably know it. Monks, the thought in me arose thus. The truth which I have realized is profound, difficult to see, abstruse, calming, subtle, not attainable through mere sophisticated logic. But beings revel in attachment take pleasure in attachment and delight in attachment. For beings who thus revel, take pleasure and delight in attachment. This is an extremely difficult thing to see. That is the law of conditionality, the principle of dependent origination. We'll talk about that later in the retreat. But he's talking really about the Dhamma because at one point he said, whoever sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma and vice versa. Really, the truth of things is difficult to see. Moreover, this is, a, is also an extremely difficult thing to see, the calming of all conditioning, the casting off of all clinging, the abandoning of desire, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. If I were to give this teaching and my words were not understood, that would simply make for weariness and difficulty for me. So that was what the Buddha felt about trying to get people to see these truths about how things actually were. It's actually difficult because people are so locked into their worldview, so attached to the way they want things to be, the things that they want to have in their experience. So we train with mindfulness on this retreat, as I said on our opening night, that the basic practice we'll do here will just be the practice of mindfulness. This is the noticing machine that enables us to see through these veils of clouded perception and begin to see more accurately, more clearly about the way things are. And so we begin to see through this moment to moment noticing, dropping again and again the distractions of thoughts of past and future, of conceiving, And it's a training, as you know how difficult that is. But as we train in that way, we begin to see the Dhamma, the truth of the way things are. So what do we see when we look in this way? What did the Buddha say we would see if we looked in this way? If we looked closely at our experience with as little um, bias as possible, with as much objectivity as possible, he, he, he actually didn't start by saying often, you know, oh, this is what you will see. He said, look at the way you do see. Look at the way you conceive. We talked a little bit about this already. Look at the way you usually conceive. And in this, he was also addressing some of the common beliefs at the time. But I think they're still very much true for us today. He said, look at the way you usually view things, usually conceive, and see how it causes you suffering. Look at the way you take things to be permanent. Look at how you have this idea that somewhere there's a source of lasting happiness, and the only problem is you just haven't held on tightly enough, or or strongly enough, or grasped the right thing. We have this idea. Or that at the core of our being, there's this um, solid, enduring self, this thing that is me, that's I, that's mine. He said, look at this. Look and see if, you, if, you, if that's your view of yourself in the world, suffering is inevitable. Because these things aren't true. The world isn't this way. So he said, He didn't say, trust me, believe me. He said, ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. Look at your own experience with this level of mindfulness that has to be at quite a deep and acute level to begin to see this uh, at the level of insight. But look and see what's actually true. And if you look and see, what you see is that things are impermanent, always changing. That if you try to hold on to what's impermanent, you'll suffer. And that at the core of our experience, there isn't some fixed solid thing. There isn't actually a core. There's just this changing flow of experience. This is what the Buddha said we can see. And the more we come into harmony and understand these truths, the less we'll suffer and it's kind of just a circular feedback loop that goes on there. There's a, a, a great um, analogy, metaphor, that I heard from Ramdas, I don't know if he invented it, but I'll, I'll give him the credit for it. He said, uh, our experience is often like as we deepen in our meditation practice that we're going skydiving for the first time. And I don't know about you, that, even though it would seem exhilarating, it's not something I'm rushing out to do. But you know, you have you really want to do it. You go up in the plane, skydiving. You know, it's a lot of adrenaline, but you you're, you're up for it. You've decided to do it, so you're there. You, you're in the plane. You get ready. You jump out of the plane. You know, there's that moment of groundlessness, and then you realize, no parachute. Uh oh, forgot to put the parachute on. The fear just comes up, of course, immediately as you're hurtling down through space. But the next insight comes, there's no ground. There's actually nowhere to land. When I heard this, you know, I think it's a great story about or a metaphor of what often happens in our meditation practices we take these leaps into the unknown and the ego grasps on, tries to grasp onto something and there's nothing there and fear comes up and then we realize nowhere to land. And I, I don't know if Ram Dass said this, but I realized as I contemplated this, it actually matches to the three characteristics that um, as we fall, are falling out of the plane and everything's whizzing by so fast, that's a Nietzsche. No parachute, well that's suffering, if I ever heard of a definition of suffering. And then the nowhere to land, that's anatta. That's, there isn't anything solid there to begin with. So it's really this great um, imagery about what happens as we open to these truths. At first it can seem even a little frightening. You know, Things are going by so fast and there's, you know, we don't know what's there, what's reliable. And yet when we un- really open to this truth and see actually nowhere to land, there's a sense of ease and freedom that's, that's unparalleled. So this is what I'm gonna be talking about tonight, these three truths or three characteristics, these three marks of existence. And I wanna start with us looking Because this is what the Buddha said we see when we look at this mind that's quiet and trained, we start to see these marks of existence. So let's look at uh, quote number 12 in your study guide. So this is a famous teaching of the Buddha about the about not-self. And he's using the schema of the aggregates, those five um, aspects of experience, form, feeling, perception, uh, formations, and consciousness. Again, we'll give a whole uh, discussion, have a whole Dhamma talk and discussion about that later on. So I'm not going to go into those aspects, but just the main pointing that he's giving in this teaching. And as usual, he... uh, Make sure that everyone's listening, says bhikkhus. And the bhikkhus say, yes, venerable sir, we're here, we're listening. And he starts off by saying very clearly, form is not self. For if form were self, it would not lead to affliction. It would be possible to have, say, a form, let my form be thus. Basically, whatever I want my body to be, not grow old, not get sick, not suffer, not have gray hair or or ache, or whatever, It should. I should be able to say this. But we can't say that of the body, nor any of the other aggregates. We can't say it of our mind. We can't say, don't think about that. And we won't. You know, you've tried that in meditation. Stop. Not now. No. Later. You know, something else. And it keeps coming back. The trained mind obviously has more potential to do that, but the untrained mind has no chance. Or perception. Perception is conditioned. We can't just say... Don't be that way. So he goes through this whole teaching about how you can't, because you can't control it, because you can't have this relationship to it, it it can't be called self. And we have to take this in the context, as I said a little earlier, of the the understandings of the time. One of the um, central understandings was that there was this... um, this thing you could the equivalent we might call today is soul called atta and that, that there was this solid permanent core center to our being and the the practice that people undertook who were serious about liberation was to somehow free that atta that that soul that core and it would be, you know, it would transcend and, and uh, go to the heaven, or where I don't actually know where they thought it went. Again, I'm not an expert on these things. And so they did all kinds of practices, whether they were ritual practices, but it was a lot about the ascetic practices of mortification of the body so this atta would release. And so the Buddhist teachings is an atta. There isn't something solid, not self. There's not something um, there. And so in that third paragraph over the page he says what do you think bhikkhus is form permanent or impermanent and they're wise they've been practicing meditation impermanent venerable sir is what is impermanent suffering or happiness suffering venerable sir is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine this I am this is myself no venerable sir so even though, as I said, in some ways this was a refutation of the beliefs at the time, there are ways we still hold those beliefs today. It's, it's, it's just very, um, the, if, we're not, if we don't think about the way things are, if we don't have this direct seeing that meditation can bring, this sense of self, this can seem very solid. And the Buddha is saying, it's not that way Look and see what it's actually like. And if it has these characteristics of being impermanent, if you try to cling to it, if you try to control it, you're going to suffer. And it always comes back to that. Look at your experience and see the ways in which you relate to your experience and that that cause you suffering. If it causes you suffering, something needs to change. Suffering is a characteristic unless we change our relationship to our experience. Oh, and I want to mention at the end of this quote... The second-to-last paragraph it it really describes how one can go from this understanding, this way of relating to um, our experience of, you know, when we recognise it's impermanent, it's it's um, uh, if we hold on to it as a cause of suffering, it's not there's nothing solid there. It basically can deepen into awakening. So the second-to-last paragraph. Seeing thus bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple, experiences revulsion towards form. And it goes through the aggregates. The word being translated as revulsion here, and I, I caught it too late, I wanted to change it, but this had already gone out, um, is nibbida. And bhikkhu, This is a lot of these translations we're using are from Bhikkhu Bodhi. In his later... Um, Translations of this word, he's changed it from revulsion. He feels that's not an accurate translation, that nibida actually means disenchantment. And I think that's a, every time I would see revulsion, it's like, that doesn't sound very equanimous, you know, that I should have revulsion towards my body. But disenchantment, I think, is a wonderful word. Disenchantment, breaking the spell of obsession with our body, with our minds, really breaking this absor- ab- absorption or obsession with our form and our mind or what, however we're conceiving. So re- when you read see Revulsion, I don't know if it's elsewhere in our study guide, really see it as this word disenchantment, that we, we disengage from this obsession with um, all of these aspects of our experience. I think that's a much more skillful way of relating to it. So these three characteristics, these three marks of existence, the first is that of anicca, or change. Now this is the one that, in our meditation practice, often one of the early insights we have as we sit down and try to track what's going on we can just see how it's like a stormy day with the sun coming in and out and the wind will blow and then calm down and a moment happy and then sad and then elated and then pains and aches and just we see it so clearly if you went to someone on the street and said do things change of course they would say yes you know time passes the weather changes but there's, the Buddha is talking about a different level of seeing here, a different level of insight into this, where there's a knowing of change that we don't forget. I mean, you know, I've had this insight again and again, but we still forget, don't we? We still hold on to things as though they're not going to change. We still plan for our retirement or put... Money in a college fund for our three-year-old. You know, and it's not as though we shouldn't do that, but it has to be held with this understanding that things do change, that we can't actually know what's going to happen. And so we need to open our awareness, open our understanding to the impact of that. uh, uh, Some time ago, Guy and I went to a teaching of the Dalai Lama down at the Shoreline Amphitheater. It was like a Buddhist Woodstock, you know, probably a couple of thousand people there and sitting out on the lawn. And they'd built this beautiful, very colorful stage, all the monks and nuns up there. And actually the main thing that I remember of his teaching, I think he was teaching on the Bodhisattva. What was he teaching? Heart Sutra. The only thing that I remember about his teaching, because it was very complex but this had so much impact. He said, when we think of this teaching on impermanence, our usual way of relating to it is, oh yes, you know, as practitioners, we know things are impermanent, things arise, they last for a while, and then they end. He said, we know that. He said, that's not how it is at all. He said, there's no arise, last for a while, and then end. He said, things are constantly in flux. If one sees truly there's this constant sense of change happening at, at, uh, in, the, on, in the essential level of our experience, in the essential level of dhammas. That things are always changing. And when he, said it, when he said that you could feel the whole place, these thousands of people kind of just drop to a different level as you took that in. Because even in opening to experience, we kind of want to think, well, yeah, I know it's impermanent, but it's here for now, you know, it's here for now. And there was that really, again, that sense of groundlessness as he talked about this. And so in meditation there's a real difference when we open to this on this deep level, go from this intellectual knowing, this kind of sense of this truth of impermanence to actually seeing it, seeing our experience really arising and passing with this rapidity where there doesn't feel like there's even a place for the mindfulness to land doesn't feel like there's actually anything there that's solid. And this really shakes us up. This is seeing the emptiness that's the essential nature of everything that we experience. And so opening to this is this profound pointing to this nature of emptiness. And sometimes it can seem like emptiness, I mean, sorry, not emptiness. I'm going to get that in the head. That impermanence is Kind of bad news, you know. It seems like, you know, we, things that we were relying on or that were so, you know, our comforts or whatever, oh, we're taking all that away. Impermanence is our friend. And Unless things are impermanent, there's no room for the path. There's no room for... I think God, uh, Gil said that this morning. There's no possibility for the unfolding of the path. And again, in the quote, quote, 67, this famous quote where the Buddha said, Oh monks, if there was one speck of permanence in the universe, as small as this microbe of dirt under my fingernail, the whole path would not be possible. The whole thing would just grind to a halt. But the fact that there isn't that iota of permanence, then everything can unfold from that. So it's this real seeing into this... Changing nature this changing nature this pointing back again and again. the next of the insights that we see through our mindfulness practice through through Vipassana is that of dukkha it's normally this word 's normally translated as suffering, but you probably know that it 's um, a word that has a whole range of meaning from the most subtle sense of dissatisfaction or not-okayness to the deepest pain, grief, pain, lamentation, despair, the Buddha would often say for suffering. In the context of the three characteristics, I prefer translating it as unsatisfactoriness because it really lets us see this relationship or this um, perception of experience of it's in, you know it's impermanent nature, meaning we can't find there you know the happiness that we thought, sure there's temporary happiness, but this, this really at the center is this inability to find lasting happiness, and so this dissatisfaction with with um, this unfindability of an essence there now this teaching on dukkha, of course again, I started up by saying, well, what are the What's the most important teaching of the Buddha? This is one that people would often say. It's the first noble truth. Often badly translated as life is suffering. He never said that. He said there is suffering. That if we cling, if we're attached, if we, if we conceive in ways of I, me, mine, I, and, and holding on, um, we're going to suffer. That's just the nature. That's the law. That's the Dhamma. But because there's this emphasis on suffering, often Buddhism has this rap of being kind of pessimistic or or depressing. You know, it's all about gloom and doom and everything's a problem. and, And what a bummer, you know, Buddhism is just no fun at all. But as the, I think it's on the first page, that great quote, you know, now as formerly I teach suffering and the end of suffering. The Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. But we really see in this teaching the interconnectedness of these three characteristics. That they all actually inform and impact each other. It's the very impermanent nature of things that leads to the suffering because we don't want it to be so. We want to hold on. We want things to be reliable and lasting and and there in the way we want them to be there. And the fact that they're not leads us to suffering. We wanna be able to control our experience. We wanna be able to have some sense that you know, the body should, shouldn't get old or it should, you know, shouldn't ache. have these aches and pains. My knees shouldn't creak. I should be able to sit for an hour and not have my back ache. If we have that view, we're gonna suffer. So they really are all uh, interwoven with each other. But when we start to look at this truth, we actually see how, f- most of the time, we're the cause of our own suffering. S- we so want, and again, I think Gil might have said this, we so want to blame out there, you know, that there's something wrong with the situation, with the other people, with, with you know, my parents or my work. That's what's making me suffer. And again, the Buddha said, no, see your responsibility in this suffering. See how it's through your conceiving, through your perceptions, your reactivity, your relationship to your experience. But he didn't deny that life was difficult, that life has all of these challenges to it. And, you know, no one has to really... um, explain to us, step by step, you know, that life is, there's suffering in life. Any length of a life, no matter how old you are, you've already suffered. You know, life is challenging. Just making your way in the world, finding a livelihood, finding relationships that are nourishing, and friendships that are supportive, and having harmonious relationships with family, if that's possible, you know. A lot of suffering in life. Uh, a couple of years, I lead this program called DPP, Dedicated Practitioners Program, where we do retreats like this uh, that are much more engaged and, and uh, study focused. And at one of the retreats, it was actually on, um, it was our Worldly Dharmas retreat, and it was a session on creativity. We had Norman, Feldman, Norman um, Fisher come from Zen Center. And he's a great poet, very creative. And he gave this whole teaching about. Um, getting us to be very uh, flexible about how we conceived of poetry and you know, really tried to break through this limitation of I can't write poetry and, and everything. It was a great exercise. But then at the end, he, he gave this whole riff that I like so much I'm, I'm going to share it with you. He said, it's hard being a human being. There's a lot to it. There really is. So let's all agree to accept the reality that we're not going to be able to do a very good job of this. There's too much to do. Isn't it a relief to know it's not going to work out? (laughs) So you're not gonna get it right. You're not gonna get it perfect. The worst possible outcome of my saying these things today, all about art and poetry, would be for everyone to walk out of this room and think, oh God, now I have to take up art. I got to brush my teeth every day, I got to go to the cleaners, my clothes are dirty, I got my family, I got children, I got aging parents, I'm aging, I got to go to doctor's appointments, and now I got to do art on top of that? How am I going to do all that? Well, don't worry, just remember, there's no hope. (laughs) You're not going to get it all done, it's not going to work out. But the important thing is, despite this, and recognizing and, and embracing this reality, Don't worry about finishing the job or doing it perfectly because it's not going to happen. But start. You see, start and continue. This is a thing. You can really trust that if you start and if you continue with commitment, that will be enough. That will be enough. So there is suffering, but we start and we continue. If we see wisely, if we relate wisely, as the Buddha said, seeing things as they are, the suffering can, can come to an end, whether it's momentary or the possible end of suffering that he talked about. So we reflect on suffering. So as the Dalai Lama said, so that when it happens, we don't feel that it shouldn't, that it's wrong that we're suffering, that we're a victim in this suffering. We reflect on suffering to find the end to suffering through seeing it clearly, seeing how it arises. The last of these three characteristics is in most ways the most challenging. Anatta, not self. This understanding that there's no permanent, solid, unchanging thing at the core of our experience, it's the source of a huge amount of confusion when people hear this. They kind of, what are you talking about? You know, I'm Sally, I'm me, I know who I am. You know, what are you saying? There's nothing there. Uh, and it's, you know, as soon as you give this teaching the next morning, there's always, well, if there's no self, then. You know, and the, I, I just, I read this a while, in you know, the Jewish jokes. If there's no self, whose arthritis is this? Uh, so I looked that up just to see if there were any other funny, if there's no self then. But the next list in the, the next joke in the, it was a whole list of Jewish Buddhist jokes. And it was, so I, I like this one too. This is the meditation instructions. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Forget this, and attaining enlightenment will be the least of your problems. (laughs) This teaching, though, is not something that we can understand intellectually, though I think it's helpful to reflect on it. And I think we can see, even on an intellectual level, really, if we look, that there's nothing there that's solid, and enduring and permanent. But the, the, it's a pointing to an insight that we have that's quite profound and quite deep. Um, and again, I think Gil already said, this is a question that brings many of us onto the spiritual path. You know, who am I? What is this? What is, what is at the core of this? How do I relate to this sense of being a human being? Well, this is the Buddha's answer to this. It's, And he says, uh, when what we actually normally do is tell ourselves a story about who we are. And we have this story, and we're embellishing it moment after moment. It's basically the movie of me. You know, I'm the star of this story. I, I, you know i 'm there sometimes the spotlights on me sometimes i 'm directing it i 'm kind of you know moving the pieces around, trying to make it work out differently sometimes i 'm sitting back and editing it and wanting to get rid of pieces and add new pieces in sometimes i 'm critiquing it. oh, she did okay back then, but you know i 'm not a bit worried about the next effort that doesn 't look too promising. You know would have been better to go back to the previous version of that that attempt. You know, we're doing this all the time, this narration, this commentary, this creating and embellishing this sense of self. This is what is called conceiving. And there's a lot of quotes in here about, you know, who am I, who was I, you know, what should I be, how was I? This is the story of me, and we do it all the time. And we have such a fixed view of who that is. But really, I mean, on such an obvious level, Are you the same person that you were, let's take a long view, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? I mean, you'd have to, even looking in the mirror, you'd have to say, no, you know, I don't look the same as I did then. But because it's all running together, you know, we think we're the same person as we were. Well, yesterday I don't look that different. I don't feel that different. But that's just a question of time. You know, that's just because we have this idea of time. It's all just a process. That's what we see when we start to look. This sense of self really gives us the illusion that we're in control. But as the Buddha said, if if we were in control, we'd say, you know, wrinkles don't come, gray hair go away, aches and pains, I don't want you. It doesn't work that way. The body, the mind, this whole experience is just this array of changing Conditions coming and going. So the Buddha's insight into this was there is nothing there that's solid. It is just that. Changing array of conditions, cause and effect, flowing. It doesn't mean there's not some degree of continuity. You know, my memories, my conditioning. But each aspect of experience in and of itself has no central core to it. There is nothing there. But what's important to remember is he, he never said there's no self, that there's a voidness. And again, if you look at quote 33, I think this is a, a really important one. Because what people usually hear this as is there's no self. What I like to say is there's, it's not self. Anything you look at is not self. It's not that there's no self. So this is... Uh, is the Wanderer Vachagotta. And apparently he's, he's in the suttas a lot. He's always coming up and asking interesting questions. So here's that question. You've always wanted to ask you know, the teacher... Is there a self? And here's the Buddha answering this question. Well, what what happens? The Buddha stays silent. He doesn't answer the question. And Vajraga got this frown, why aren't you answering me? And he goes away um, a little annoyed. And Ananda afterwards says, why didn't you tell him the answer? And the Buddha said, if I'd said there was no self, he'd fall into nihilism. If I said there was a self, he'd fall into um, permanence. What I teach is not not either of these two, that this is not the relevant teaching or question. And I love it at the end. If I'd said there is no self, the wonder of Achagata already confused would have fallen into even greater confusion, thinking it seems the self I formerly had now does not exist. And this is what the Buddha is saying. It's not that there's something there and you become a Buddhist and it goes away. That's not what this teaching is. The teaching is there's nothing there in the first place. So it's not that what happens is you have this insight and there's like this explosion or lightning bolt and something that was there dissolves and now there's emptiness, what the pointing is is there's nothing there in the first place. all there is is this change of array of changing conditions all playing into each other, but nothing there in the first place. This is the doorway to freedom, actually opening to this, seeing that this solid thing, this me, that for many of us actually often is a diminished sense of self, you know, that I'm not good enough, that I'm not okay, you know, that I don't know this and I can't do that, to actually see that it's a process of which um, we have, there is a relationship, there is a causal nature, and we can bring wisdom into that relationship and actually open to a great deal of freedom and um, possibility that's not there when we're stuck in the limited sense of self. So it really is a huge relief to see. And I know for myself, I had this idea, you know, that there would be this kind of lightning bolt or, you know, some vacancy that would come and then I'd just float around and people, anything that people said just wouldn't have this impact on me because there was no self there anymore. And I see now it's not that way at all. I see that this sense of self still arises, of course it does. It arises with all of these experiences of form and perception and the mental formations of Vedna, the feeling tone. But if I see it, if I see it, it can also then release. I saw this happen so clearly. Every time I would think about this retreat and we're getting these suttas together and I'd think, what am I gonna say to these people? You know, what am I, what can I say that will be worthwhile or interesting? I'm teaching with Gil and Guy who knows so. And I'd see this self get created that was really anxious. And then I'd look at it and go, that's just a thought. If I believe that thought, I'm not gonna be a very good teacher. I'm not going to have anything to say. It's going to come out of this sense of diminished self. If I just let that go, and as uh, Norman Fisher said, start and continue, teaching will happen, words will be said, and hopefully something useful will come through. So it's arising and passing, arising and passing. That's how I see it. A little while ago, um, actually, some time ago, I got to interview. Actually, Guy and I interviewed Joseph Goldstein for the Spirit Rock Newsletter, and I asked him, "What's the story you find yourself telling the most?" You, you know, he's given thousands of dharma talks to thousands of people, and he said, "You know what it is? It's the Big Dipper story." <laughs> he said, uh, "People." He said, uh, "It's a suggestion that people look up in the night sky and recognize the Big Dipper." And then, then imagine, whether, then inquire whether there's actually a Big Dipper up there or not as some concrete thing. Then, of course, people recognize that the Big Dipper is just a concept which we've constructed. And this concept separates those stars from all the other stars in the sky. But even being aware of that, we see how difficult it is not to see the Big Dipper because we've been so conditioned by that concept. I like that story and that image because to me it seems to help, understand, help us understand the notion of selflessness. This is such a difficult understanding to convey because the construct of self is so deeply held. It is a reference point for our entire lives. The understanding of selflessness is really the heart of awakening. So I like to find ways to try to communicate the understanding that the notion of self is really just a belief in a concept arising from a constellation of changing experience. This is what's actually there. It's this constellation of changing experience and we shape it into a thing and have the idea that it's permanent but it's not actually that way. And there's great freedom in that to see the emptiness that is at the at the is it, that is the essential nature that's actually what is the dhamma at the, 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 the that our experience is revolving around all of these understandings all of these insights come out of just this simple practice of mindfulness not just. Mindfulness, though, as the book title is, Mindfulness Alone is Not Enough. The wisdom has to be there. The understanding of what we're actually looking at. The willingness to see beyond our habitual ways of seeing and relating to experience. To actually see things the way they are. And as the Buddha points to again and again, to see the ways our holding, our clinging, leads us into suffering and actually releasing that, opening to the emptiness, seeing the empty nature of things, seeing the impermanence that's there, that is the nature of things, then there's freedom. Then there's the possibility of awakening. And to really see how these three characteristics are all intertwined. You're not, you not—you know, like pull one out and it's a separate thing. They all relate to each other, they're all pointing to the same understanding. They're all pointing to emptiness, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. They're pointing to the emptiness. When we open to this truth of emptiness, there's actually a great deal of freedom, a great deal of happiness that's possible because we're not holding on to things that are changing. We're not looking outside for our happiness. We're not blaming our experience for our suffering. We're really seeing things the way they are. And out of that comes a natural nibbida, disenchantment that was in that sutta quote, a natural renunciation and letting go. And it's not about pushing things away or sackcloth and ashes in this Coming into alignment with the Dhamma, coming into alignment with the way things are, there's not that sense of struggle. We put so much energy into our construct of ourselves and our construct of the world. As we come more into alignment, there's a sense of peace and ease that's profound and deep and is the doorway to the unconditioned. To the ultimate happiness that the Buddha spoke about. It's not as though we kind of transcend in, this, uh, in the unconditioned, the go beyond the three characteristics. They're the hallmarks of existence. They still exist. But if we don't, if we see things truly, if we th- see things the way they are, that characteristic of suffering is let go of because we know that things are impermanent. We know we're not in control in the way we usually conceive and then the suffering can actually come to an end. And this profound teaching of the Buddha becomes a practice instruction. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as me or mine. We know in some deep and profound way that it's all empty. So at the end of our teachings, we often just like to sit quietly for a moment. You don't need to change your postures just to have a few moments to let the words kind of settle before we go to the walking. Thank you for your attention. It was about a half hour for walking and then we'll come back for our last sitting and we'll do uh, chanting. Are you chanting at the beginning or the end of the sitting? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.